Welcome to the CGOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, we talk about the Canadian Triple Crown of Horse Racing with Darren Dunn. History could be made this weekend. We'll also check in with Fowler FC head coach Rob Gale on what they've been up to this offseason on the podcast. Tomorrow, history could be made. In Canadian horse racing, as Mighty Heart looks to become the first horse in 17 years to capture all three jewels of the Canadian Triple Crown. And there's no one I know that knows more about horse racing than the president and CEO of Boy Downs, Darren Dunn. First of all, Darren, how are you enjoying your quote-unquote off-season so far? Well, certainly quiet like other businesses in Winnipeg in a lot of ways, uh, safe and sound. Uh, Simulcast racing, though, from the top venues across the world, continues to go morning, noon, and night, uh, governed down in size of uh, VLTs and uh, and very, very limited on-site dining. But, uh, you know, continues to be a path that works for us uh, as we uh, try and work with everybody to continue to uh, survive the situation that has engulfed us all. Uh, but, you know, we're still certainly very proud of the season we put together and uh, what we were able to do and showcase Manitoba to uh, not just Canada but the world and and still very proud of being the first racetrack uh, to reopen, uh, albeit without spectators, and um, put up some numbers that uh, will be uh, legendary for some time to come. And seeing it, the climate in Manitoba, certainly the numbers keep going up and up in terms of COVID. I'm sure you feel very grateful you were able to get that season in. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to kid you. Happy to get to the finish line uh, back in September. Uh, it was uh, certainly a lot of work to be able to do that. In, in saying that, a little bit of a military operation out here for the protocols we had in place, the structure we had in place. I certainly feel for a lot of people out there and, and businesses who talk about the, you know, the common buzzword seems to be fatigue. Um, you know, I could see signs of that out here. Uh, it, you know, we didn't let our guard down at all, and uh, you know, just had to give a lot of reminders of, uh, you know, keeping our eye on the prize and, and reminding our, our folks here, uh, whether employees uh, or guests. Uh, in the form of the backstretch trainers and horsemen and jockeys who came in um, or the very, very limited customers we had. It's just something that is all too important uh, to uh, to make sure that, to, you know, you handle properly, but not just get protocols in place, but to see them through to the finish. And um, so to deliver a race meet that really got, a, you know, a bit of a gut punch, to be honest, back in March, uh, all the way through to, uh, you know, pretty much the end of September, uh, uninterrupted and safely uh, with the amount of folks that we did have on site here. Uh, very, very pleasing, very satisfying. I've probably interviewed you close to a dozen times about Triple Crown races in the States. I'm not sure I've ever talked to you about the Canadian Triple Crown, though, and uh, certainly some a, a lot of history with the Canadian Triple Crown as well. Before we get into what kind of history could be made this weekend, let's just talk about the Canadian Triple Crown and the kind of history that is here in Canada in thoroughbred racing. Well, sure, Christian. You know what? That's a fair comment. Uh, more than probably people are aware of, uh, because it is all too easy to default to down south of the border and start at the Kentucky Derby and quickly move to the Preakness and, uh, and follow that with the Belmont. The Triple Crown is synonymous with those races uh, in the United States. But in fact, we do have a Triple Crown that's been around for well over 100 years here in Canada, beginning with the Queen's Plate at Woodbine. It shifts then slightly south down to Fort Erie Racetrack, uh, just outside of Hamilton, just outside of uh, um, Buffalo, uh, for some perspective on where that is, and uh, for the Prince of Wales Stakes. And then they go back to Woodbine for what's called the Breeder Stakes, which is going to take place again uh, Saturday afternoon. But it's very hard to do. Uh, that combination, whether south or north of the border and, and here in Canada, 
We haven't had a horse successfully do it since all the way back in 2003 with a very talented horse by the name of Wando. So it's been close to two decades since a horse in Canada has uh, swept all three of those Canadian legs. So the how different are the three races? Because we know the, the, the lengths are different in the American Triple Crown. Is that kind of similar up here too? Yeah, interestingly, the, the distances of the Canadian Triple Crown are identical to those in the United States. Mile and a quarter for the Queen's Plate mile and a quarter for the Kentucky Derby, mile and three sixteenths for the Prince of Wales Stakes, mile and three sixteenths for the Preakness, and then finishing it off with what they call the Test of Champions at Belmont, Belmont Park for the Belmont Stakes, a mile and a half. Well, in fact, the Breeders' Stakes that goes Saturday is also a mile and a half. I think the biggest change that's worth noting is the versatility you have to have to be able to do this in Canada. And what I mean by that is the surfaces are different. So in the United States, all three of those races are on dirt, plain and simple, end of story. Here in Canada, the Queen's Plate is on what's called tapita, which is an artificial surface. Essentially, it's like rubber-coated uh, fibers, etc., uh, but it's, a, it's an artificial surface, very unusual. And then you go back to uh, Fort Erie at, uh, for the Prince of Royal Stakes, and you run on dirt. And then you go back up to Woodbine for the Breeder Stakes to run on grass or turf. So three different surfaces make it just as challenging as the three different distances, but I think that makes it definitely more unique than the American Triple Crown, and uh, the challenge, I think, is one could say a little bit greater other than the competition down south for those Triple Crown races is dramatically uh, escalated. Sounds like tennis, where if you want to be great, you got to be great on different surfaces. Yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. I mean, it's not just the grass of Woodbine, or sorry, Woodbine, just about uh, the, the grass uh, in uh, England at the old English club there. Uh, Wimbledon. You know, yeah, Wimbledon. Thank you. Uh, Woodbine, see, horse racing guy, how can yeah, you tell? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the clay courts uh, for the French Open, et cetera. I mean, it is a difference, and, uh, and the versatility it takes to be able to pull those off and win those Grand Slam events. Um, these are certainly equally Grand Slam events in horse racing, for sure. So you mentioned Wando back in 03, the last Canadian Triple Crown winner. There were three straight, 89, 90, 91, and then 93, and maybe people thought they were getting spoiled there because they hadn't had any since 63, but it's been 17 years. Mighty Heart has the chance to do it. What makes Mighty Heart special? Well, certainly i got to say a horse who's emerged to be uh, the it horse, if you will, right now, uh, because he is, of course, going for that Canadian Triple Crown. Wasn't on the radar of anybody in particular coming into this season, I can tell you. I mean, I think the thing that uh, is most unique with this horse and, and is most talked about is the fact that this horse only has one eye. Uh, you know, a little unusual to say the least. It's not the only time there's been a one-eyed horse uh, racing at a high level. But uh, Mighty Heart lost his eye in a paddock accident at two. That cost him his two-year-old uh, campaign. Generally speaking, horses do run at two, albeit on a limited uh, schedule. Uh, so he returns at three, really off the radar, goes into the Queen's Plate as a long shot, 13-1, to 1, returning $28 for a $2 win bet, but did it demonstratively, did it on the front end, went wire to wire in a 13-horse field, and at a very, very high rate of speed, uh, caught everybody off guard, including yours truly watching the race. But to come back and prove that was no fluke and winning the Prince of Wales Stakes, when I watched that race, uh, it was a very measured uh, strategy by his jockey. Uh, saving everything for the stretch, and uh, in the stretch drive approaching the wire, just blew by the competition, finished with a ton of horse still in the jockey's hands. Uh, a lot left, uh, well-rested coming into this race. There's every reason to believe that he's going to win. I would be shocked if this horse did not win that triple crown tomorrow, but a very, very special horse. And when they're young, Christian, this horse is only three. That upside is always there, so the ability for them to develop, to mature, to gain confidence, 
take their game to another level is always on the table, and Mighty Heart has just been doing that uh, in spades lately. What kind of handicap does that give a horse missing an eye? How much would that affect their their running? You know, I'm going to have to say that uh, in this case, obviously not a lot. Uh, without a doubt, uh, jockeys are going to provide the feedback. Uh, the trainers are going to be very sensitive and aware uh, relative, first and foremost, to safety. Is the horse out there comfortable? Is the horse being able to see and navigate well on its own? Uh, you know, God bless the jockeys who do guide these horses, but let's be clear, a 115-pound jockey on an 1,100, 1,200-pound animal going 45 miles an hour, if that horse wants to go left, you're going left. If that horse wants to go right, you're going right. So there's got to be a sense that uh, there's confidence and comfort, uh, safety. Uh, the horse is able to be steered, if you will. Um, not so easy as a car, but uh, relative to the, the reins in the jockey's hands, and Mighty Heart obviously responded to that um, and proved that he loves to run and uh, that he's a horse who... Uh, certainly can be trained up to uh, what would be his visual handicap. So normally this final leg of the Triple Crown is run in August. Obviously everything is being moved around this year because of the pandemic, but the forecast in Toronto tomorrow calls for a high of 8 degrees. Does the cooler weather matter in horse racing? You know, it does to some degree, but uh, in all honesty, I I would say that a little bit cooler is a little bit better, and uh, I I think it's going to have zero effect ultimately on the horses. I think the only scenario that would have an effect is when you're talking about extremes. Uh, Cold, generally speaking, doesn't happen. The seasons in Canada don't tend to go too, too deep uh, relative to bringing colder weather into play. But certainly the extreme heat can uh, can take a horse uh, to a to a different uh, kind of level of competition that he would normally maybe put forth uh, relative to maybe a bit of weight loss or being washed out. Not like any one of us who would uh, have to go for a, a one-mile spin. Uh, and if it was 30-some-odd degrees, uh, it might be a different performance. In this case, 8 degrees is just going to be letter set perfect. Uh, Mighty Hard post position number 8 in a 12-horse field. To be honest, I'm kind of surprised how big the field is. And I say that only because Mighty Heart has just been so impressive and demonstratively has won his last couple of races that he would be a handful on any given uh, day for any given horse here in, in Canada. Um, you have to be Canadian bred, so there is a level of limit. Uh, you can't come up from the United States for this unless, again, you are uh, originally bred in Canada. So the competition is governed down to some degree, but still 12 horses wanting uh, to go to post and more specifically 11 to take a crack at this horse. Uh, I give them credit for stepping up, but uh, really it looks like a mismatch. So I guess I know what you'll be doing tomorrow. Well, I'll be watching the race, but I won't be betting on it necessarily. Only reason being I I don't see the value in this horse. I think this horse is listed on the morning line or what the handicapper of Woodbine says uh, is the expected final payoff uh, at even money, which means for putting up $2, you get back 4 which is 100% profit. Uh, go to the bank any day for that. I just don't believe this horse will go off at $4. I think it'll be much less than that. Um, so sort of the risk-reward I don't believe is there, but I'll tell you what, to watch a beautiful, beautiful animal uh, who's at the height of his skill set right now, uh, galloping around uh, and taking on some, you know, a significant amount of competition relative to the size of the field. Uh, the challenge of the distance at a mile and a half can never be taken for granted. And the fact that the race is on a new surface uh, uh, turf uh, creates a scenario that uh, could, you know, potentially uh, lay an upset out there opportunity. But uh, it won't be coming from uh, my lips uh, to anybody for advice. Uh, mighty hard to win, place, and show. Home cooled out. Um, get the get the camera ready for the picture. Uh, start engraving the trophy. Just one more question before I let you go. What's the difference in terms of the impact the, between turf and dirt and the Tapeta, what what's the feel? How how does that change the horse's feel on the track? Well, you know, you probably heard the term, or if you haven't, certainly in our industry, horses for courses. 
uh, not unlike other athletes to some degree who, uh, you know, let's go to the NFL and talk about uh, how well some quarterbacks or, or players will play indoor on artificial turf uh, versus who will play outdoor on grass. Uh, it really is a feel, uh, custom to the animal in this case in the sport. The artificial surface of woodbine called tapita, I talked about sort of the coated rubber uh, and carpet fibers, uh, very kind on the horse, but it's probably the most akin to grass, uh, to turf. So the fact that he won the Queen's Plate so easily on that artificial surface uh, should translate to a good performance on grass. Mighty Hart has raced on the turf before on one occasion, did not perform particularly well, finished uh, 11th uh, in uh, a 14-horse field and a very, very poor performance, to be honest with you. But, uh, you know, came out of that race to then take his career to a whole other level after a layoff. Uh, it was at a track in down in uh, southern United States, uh, Woodbine, uh, this horse has won two of three and only missed by uh, just a little over a length in his other opportunity there. So he loves Woodbine. I have every reason to believe he's going to handle the turf for the grass, in other words, really, really well. And, uh, yeah, Mighty Heart, uh, number one with a bullet. All right, Darren, we'll appreciate your time as always. Enjoy the race tomorrow and the rest of your off season here. Thanks, Christian. Appreciate it. All the best. Valor FC making a signing today. Raphael Oheen is coming back to the team. He is one of the original members of Valor FC dating back to January 10th, 2019. After spending three seasons with WSA Winnipeg of the Professional Development League and the head coach and general manager of Valor FC, Rob Gale joins us now on the Sports Show. How are you doing, Rob? Good. Thank you, Christian. How are you? Good. Let's start with the news of the day. Raphael Oheen, why is he a player you want to keep on your squad? Um, he just gets better and better. Um, when we first had him, he'd come out of the PDL. Um, and I think at that level, he'd shown he was the best player. Uh, but it was a natural step up for him. And he's got all the tools, really, to be a very high-level player. But uh, we always felt he tried to do too much, you know, and try and beat the entire midfield of a team instead of just one part of it. And he's really blossomed in the last... Uh, 12 months we do a lot of video work with him he's always asking questions uh, and he, he he's accepted i think and and started to flourish in the in a defensive midfield position which is where we think he he can offer the most so we're delighted to have him back and like many people in the cpl his journey has taken him all over the world started in his home country of ghana he's played in switzerland thailand sweden and has now landed and seems to have found a home here in Winnipeg. What did you see from him in the Island Games this year, the growth compared to his first year in the CPL? Um, I think, you know, with Raph, I mean, we call him the Rhino. He's just so powerful, and he's frightening, really, when he gets going. And he, he's, he's using that in the right way now. He's not trying to burst every time he's get it. He's not being overly flashy. He knows when just to play one and two touch and keep the game moving and, and quicken himself up. Um, and like you said, I think he has found a home here in Winnipeg. You know, he's, he coaches out in the community with the St. Charles clubs. Uh, he, he's got a couple of young girls teams he works with. He does work with different clubs where he goes out and the inner city program. And I think that feeling of comfortability and where he's at and what we want of him now and feeling like he's settled has helped him. Um, but he's comfortable in the right way. He's not comfortable in that he doesn't want to improve and, and keep striving forward. So I think uh, he, he's really starting to show on the field a new level of tactical discipline to go with his already technical and unbelievable physical qualities. 
Also this offseason, the team has also announced the returns of Andrew Jean-Baptiste, uh, Master Kasher, and Brett Levi's. Uh, explain why these three men are coming back. Uh, I think top performers, if you look at it from uh, the Island Games, Andrew Jean-Baptiste, for me, was one of the MVPs of the entire tournament. And had he not got injured against Halifax, I think we would have gone all the way. Uh, such was his loss and, and replacement sort of cost us. So I think, uh, you know, he and Brett Levi's former MLS player, uh, Andrew himself, former MLS player, Stefan Sabar has played all of his life in the top division in Europe. So these guys are experienced. They are all part of our leadership group and they are all top performers. And we're, we're going to announce, you know, I think we've got at least... Uh, seven or eight more still to announce that uh, are coming back over the next uh, few uh, weeks and months leading up to Christmas to keep our fans uh, engaged and excited about what's going to happen next year with all of these guys returning. Now one player who is is not returning is Dylan Carrero. Uh, The announcement made that he would not be coming back. Is that just a mutual agreement there? Yes, um, I had a very honest chat with Dylan. Um, he, you know, having grown up by Valor Road, and he, he was my former under-20 national team captain. He was my provincial team captain back in my MSA technical director days. Um, we've got a fabulous relationship, great mutual respect there, and uh, he's getting married next year. His fiance, uh, as it were, lives in uh, uh, Toronto region. And he's sort of done two seasons away from her. Um, and he's now getting to a point in his life where he, he's starting to think about his future and maybe transitioning in more into coaching and other things as well as playing. So I think ultimately it was, you know, the right time for, for Dylan to, to move on and start a new chapter in his life, really. When you see James Pantamis, who played goalie for you guys during this Island Games succeeding with Montreal Impact, how does that feel? Awesome. Any player I've worked with, you know, um, especially James, who, who who done so well for us as well. Um, but you love to see that as a coach. Um, any player who goes on and, you know, fulfills some of their potential or goes on to a higher level or represents a country, you're taking an enormous amount of satisfaction in because, you know, I spent a lot of time with James through his youth national team days and, he went through a big injury and he's he's kind of been second and third fiddle for a while. And, you know, similar to Julian Dunn, if we can give these guys the exposure they need to prove themselves, that's what our league is for. That's what, the, you know, one of our major aims as a, as a football club is, is to develop and nurture talent and, and hopefully move them on to better levels. So we take great pride in, in, in James and, and seeing him do well. And, uh, Long may it continue. Any idea what 2021 is going to look like? <laughs> if anybody's got any idea what 2021 looks like, I think they could earn a fortune right now. <laughs> just the life in general. Uh, let's yeah. just hope it, it's healthy and safe and uh, life can resume and, and, and the economy and people who've lost their jobs and people who are often in a lot worse situation health or finance-wise than us. Uh, get back on their feet. I think that's first and foremost, mate. And we'll, I think we've proved that we can, you know, still make things happen this, this year when other sports teams and franchises and leagues couldn't. 
Um, so I'm sure 2021 there'll be there'll be something for the fans, and we just hope uh, we can get people in IG Field and get that trench bouncing again because we know that'll help the team with their continued improvement and, and push us on to trying to win a championship next year. Now, obviously, you're not going to cheer for Forge FC, but the fact that they just went on the road in the CONCACAF League play and won in El Salvador, I'm sure across the league people are happy with this just because it lends more credibility to the Canadian Premier League, right? Yeah, uh, yeah you'd be surprised. I think there wouldn't be a Canadian Premier League player or coach that wasn't cheering for them last night because it is good for the league. It is good for everybody. Uh, it increases teams' rankings, and it shows Look, we tied Forge 2-2 in that last game and probably could have and should have beaten them. Uh, there's not much difference between the teams. So when our teams go and compete like they did last year against MLS clubs or CONCACAF nations um, and clubs, it, it shows the quality of our league. It gives us more coefficient points uh, in rankings, in data, Um and I just think it brings increased awareness and value to our league and makes it a more attractive proposition. So as long as they're still in that tournament, I think you'll find everybody associated with the Canadian Premier League uh, wishing them well and hoping they go further because they're not easy games down there. I've done them with the national team and El Salvador's not a fun place to visit. Um, and uh, it can be very difficult conditions down there to win. So all credit to them. Yeah, from what I've read, it was a very humid atmosphere in uh, El Salvador when they played that game. Just from a scouting point of view, for you as a general manager, how different is it this year compared to years past trying to observe talent just because of the pandemic, or is there a change? Yeah, no, it's a big difference. You know, in the off-season, that's really the time that we get out and travel, and nothing substitutes seeing a player. So last year, uh, we were down into Florida. Uh, I was into England, Italy, the Dominican Republic. Damien, my assistant, was into France, Austria, uh, Belgium. Uh, assistant, uh, goal, the goalkeeping coach, same thing. You know, went into different places in Europe. Also went into Ontario and Quebec for us. Um, it's it is different. There's no question. Uh, you know, even two three weeks ago, we were going to go and watch a player that we had had our eyes on for almost the whole season and wanted to watch his final league game uh, in Quebec. Uh, and just as we were preparing to travel the day before the game, we were told it was cancelled because of COVID reasons. Um, and that was, yeah, like I say, just at the start of October. So uh, it's a challenge. I think, you know, we, the, the beauty of football nowadays and the, the global game that it is, is there's, you know, full game footage and videos and, uh, you know, someone's agent or a player is only really one phone call away at any one time. So you just have to use the resources available, try and do as much due diligence as you can. And for us in particular, we do a lot of work on the type of player, the character, the history, uh, to make sure they're a right fit for Manitoba uh, and for Valor. So we just have to make sure we're doing that diligence without necessarily live speaking to the player or... Uh, or watching them in person. And uh, luckily, we're all experts in Zoom now, so actually having those over-the-computer conversations seem like the normal now. Finally, Rob, just a, th a thought on a story I, I talked about on the show last night, that there's the rumblings of a FIFA-backed European Super League with a bunch of high-profile teams like Liverpool, Man City, Man United. It seems like it would be the death of the Champions League. Are you familiar with the story? And if so, what do you think of it? 
I am familiar with the story. I pay a lot of in, uh, interest, obviously, to world football and uh, being an Englishman growing up and I see the daily newspapers and everything else. I mean, it's an interesting concept. The The Champions League was, was kind of scorned when that came around. I remember the, you know, replacing the old uh, European Cup and how would it work and everything else. It just seems nowadays, though, that the the higher echelons, the, the richest clubs find ways to, to make more money through um, media rights and these kinds of competitions than anybody else. And I think looking at COVID and, and having myself been a player that went through the sort of pyramid of, of English football in the, uh, in the semi-professional and, and professional lower leagues, it, it, it's becoming increasingly difficult for those teams to survive. And I don't think that's going to be great for the game. Um, how much money is too much money at the top end of the game, right? Uh, it's like the economy and uh, the people who seem to have got wealthier through a pandemic uh, are the ones who didn't need it in the first place. So for me, uh, I just think football needs to regulate itself better uh, and recalibrate. Uh, and try and get back to more opportunity for more people. Uh, and the average fan on the street certainly wants to be able to go and see their local team, especially in those countries where it's easily and accessible and there are 92 professional clubs. I think it'd be a great shame if, if this leads to more money at the top and more doom at the bottom. All right, Rob, appreciate your input. I'm in 100% agreement with that. Thanks for your time tonight, and enjoy the offseason as much as you can here. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Christian. Good speaking to you. Thanks for the interest, as always. Tune in to the CGOB Sports Show weeknights from 7 to 9 with me, Christian O'Mell, or you can download the podcast on iTunes. It's actually on iTunes now. Wow. If you got an Android, then I think you're out of luck, but Apple products, you're good. So listen to the podcast, please. Subscribe? You can rate it? What's the worst that could happen?